This is Top Landing Gear. And welcome to Top Landing Gear and our Full Flaps interview with Chris Parry, a Royal Navy observer on HMS Antrim's Wessex 3, known as Humphrey. Well, Chris is a fascinating character, and some of the stories he tells us here about what went on down south during the Falklands conflict 40 years ago defy belief, not least the insertion and rescue of an SAS party on the Fortuna Glacier on South Georgia in the most unbelievably treacherous conditions. The fact that Chris also fired the first shots of the war to disable the Argentine submarine, the Santa Fe, is almost a footnote. The interview is full of the most incredible anecdotes, and it's also fascinating to hear Chris's thoughts on the current state of the British military 40 years on, and his views on the developing situation in Russia. We recorded Chris's interview on April the 20th, 2022, 40 years to the day since he and the crew of Humphrey were briefed for that extraordinary operation involving the SAS, which would take place just hours later. Hold on to your hats and settle in for an utterly riveting ride. So we're just delighted to be joined by Chris Parry, who my brother and I have actually met before, many, many moons ago, when you'd just come back from the Falklands, Chris, because you were married to my godfather's daughter. We do like to keep things in the family in this podcast. <laughs> but uh, you remember meeting us, which is, I think, even better, even more exciting, because you had a story to tell, which we're going to ask you about now, which is your time in the Falklands. But, Chris, first of all, when you were training in the, the Gibraltar training area uh, in Antrim, which was your ship, when it was all beginning to kick off in the Falklands, what were your thoughts uh, and those around you in, in the Navy when you were tasked to go down uh, down south, what did you think w was going to happen? Well, on the uh, 2nd of April, when it was confirmed that Argentina had uh, invaded, um, essentially what happened was a number of ships were detailed off to go south. Uh, and in my ship, we thought, well, maybe we're not going to go. They'll send a couple of frigates, a destroyer and an oiler down there, perhaps the nuclear submarine. But the rest of us would go home for Easter. Um, and we're all pretty surprised when everybody turned south, except for the ships that were really clapped out. Uh, and those that were clapped out were emptied of all their stores and ammunition. We, we, we went alongside Ariadne, and we emptied her of ammunition, torpedoes, stores, and everything. Uh, and we were doing vertical replenishment uh, on the flight deck aft. And we were carrying shells in uh, underslung loads, uh, as if peacetime didn't exist. It's quite extraordinary. Uh, torpedoes on strops instead of in their, their, their sort of uh, carrying sort of trolleys. Um, and we ended up in a ship that had all its major passageways, uh, two crates thick of tins. We're actually walking on tins for the next sort of two weeks. Well, this is so we food supplies. Well stored. Yeah. Um, so we headed off south, uh, and so did most of the other ships from the spring train group. 
Uh, and we started thinking, okay, well, maybe this is going to happen. Maybe it's a show of force. Um, I always say to people, uh, I after 40 years, I always get very skeptical when people say, oh, yeah, we knew we were sailing to war. That wasn't the case. Hmm. Uh, we thought we were going down. We wouldn't actually get into combat. Uh, the Argentinians would go, yeah, we get it. You're on your way. Uh, and they'd leave. And right up till, let's see, it's the 20th of April today, I'd say right up until even tomorrow, the 21st of April, um, when we're off South Georgia, um, we still didn't think there was going to be a fighting uh, war. Um, and it was only when, obviously, we got into action at South Georgia that things started. Uh, but if anybody says to you they knew they were going to war when they left the UK or the Gibraltar exercise areas, uh, they're fibbing. Did you get there ahead of the main fleet? Or did, did the whole fleet well, arrive um, together? it's slightly complicated because uh, in Antrim we had uh, Admiral Woodward, uh, uh, who became the task force commander. Yeah. He transferred very quickly to uh, Glamorgan, and Antrim was detailed off to be the lead for a small group that consisted of Antrim herself, Plymouth, uh, Tidespring and Euler, M Company Royal Marines, um, and we were detailed off to go and recapture South Georgia. Uh, and we went silently on radar and most of our communications all the way from uh, uh, Gibraltar on the 2nd of April via Ascension. And in fact, we arrived off um, South Georgia uh, yesterday, 19th of April, <laughs> uh, 40 years ago. Goodness yeah. me. So you were there as a, an observer on the Wessex Three, which is known as Humphrey. So the role of the observer in that in the Wessex was was what exactly, Chris? Well, I always used to say to people that um, <clears throat> the observer actually fights the aircraft; the pilots fly it, <laughs> um, and essentially that's the case. If you think of uh, a Wessex Three or even a Sea King in those days, essentially being a a London cab with a couple of cab drivers in the front. <laughs> in the back, you've got all the electronics, you've got the sensors, you've got the weapons, uh, and you've got an air crewman, an observer. And, and the observer essentially is an airborne warfare officer, and he's there. He, he fights the aircraft, as I said, uh, and you ask the pilots in between them taking bananas off the dispenser uh, to fly <laughs> the aircraft where, where you want it to go. Uh, and predominantly, it was an anti-submarine aircraft. We had a sonar on the end of a uh, piece of electric wire that was 235 feet long. Uh, we had a fairly good radar for over the sea, not great over the land. Uh, and we had the communications and torpedoes, depth charges, machine guns, lots of toys. How, how were the torpedoes launched? Were they, did they held underneath the aircraft and, and they went from there? Or was there a, a more... Heath Robinson method than that? No, there were carriers on either side of the aircraft that were fitted when you wanted to have um, munitions on the side. Uh, and obviously they were programmable in, in a very analog sense for sort of depth and setting and all that sort of thing. And you carried them externally. Um, and um, you could do the same with the depth charges as well. So, Chris, in terms of the layout then inside the cabin of the Wessex 3, it was very different from the Wessex 5. I, I, I want to make this distinction because that becomes very pertinent in, in the story about the Fortuna Glacier. So, whereas the Wessex 5s could be used as, were used as, as troop carriers, they could carry how many? Well, I think that they had about sort of 20 seats. Whether you could lift 20 people or not would be... Um... Debatable, but they had about I think six to ten in, in full load, mm. 15 in light load in a Wessex five, I would think. Yeah. Right. And but your Humphrey, the Wessex three, the cabin was full of electronics and obviously the, the, the space taken up by the sonar. So 
how many people would you comfortably be flying in the back of the Wessex three? Um, in addition to the four man crew, probably two or three. Yeah. Yeah. And they they'd be standing. Yeah. But you were actually asked, I think, on the way down to South Georgia, to remove the sonar from from Humphrey. Is that right? Yeah, the admiral, who was a submariner, of course, decided he wanted all these <laughs> helicopters for um, load lifting uh, and for taking troops around. Um, and we compl- complained vociferously about this, um, and um, we managed to sneakily keep the radar in. Um, and happily we did because actually we used that for surface search, for targeting, all the, the other sorts of things we needed to do. But I tipped off my um, chief mechanician saying, look, you may need to put this back pretty quickly. Now, let me tell you, it had never <laughs> been done before at sea. So um, he was spotting up in his sort of um, his Haynes manual to make sure he could do it. <laughs> and um, and, uh, and so Chief McKee, my hat goes off to him because when we had to put it in, he put it in uh, in less than 18 hours, and the first time we pinged, it worked. So wow. he did a great job. In, in hideous weather conditions. Yeah, it's um, South Georgia is an interesting place. I, I always say, and I said in my book, um, you get four seasons in the same day there. Um, and you know, looking back on my diary today, 20th of April, while we were sitting off waiting to put the SCS on, on, on the ground, uh, we were, had a 4-6 from the northwest. So that's winds of, you know, upwards of 40 knots. Uh, yeah. And that's on a nice day. Um, so it's lumpy off South Georgia. The wind and the weather come straight off Antarctica. And the first thing it hits is South Georgia. And you get all the turbulence and friction associated with wind when it hits an obstruction. Mm. Uh, Catabatics, anabatic winds, uh, a lot of fog uh, and a lot of snow. Yeah. And, and that, again, is is a relevant factor, the snow and the fog, because it it was totally reliant on you as the as the navigator if i may use that term for, oh, you, for may, this no, you may not <laughs> <laughs> right as the observer with a radar is that observer, right observer doing um shall we say navigation on a chart that was um made in 1950 oh. um most of the features were about three miles out and i have to tell you the only time i've ever used a stopwatch <laughs> and the dead reckoning to actually get through some fairly interesting gaps in the cloud and in mountains, actually. Yeah, Astonishing. I mean, people have to read your book, which I've checked on Amazon, is available in paperback. It's called Down South, and it is your... There it is. Uh, we can we can see, Chris, of course, it's... Yeah. We're, and so, if you can get hold of a, a hardback, they are really rare. And, uh, I've got it right here. Moment. Yeah, they're selling for over £100 at the moment. Fantastic. So Would you like to buy mine, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> It's signed by Rob by Curling. Curling. <laughs> if it's signed, they're only worth about 20 quid. <laughs> but it's brilliant because that is a diary that you wrote pretty much on a daily basis, um, give or take. So it's, you know, very much of the moment without any sort of use of hindsight. So it's it's absolutely fascinating. You really get the feel of just what was going on out there. So, Chris, this, this Fortuna glacier the, the the insertion of the SAS onto the Fortuna glacier can you just take us through that from the beginning because they were they were absolutely sure that this was what they wanted this is the way they wanted to go in uh, at South Georgia and you all queried that this seemed a, a very strange way to want to insert into onto South Georgia well uh, interesting enough Rob it's the 20th of April today and this was the day the discussion was had to tell you the yeah. truth but one of the strange things about the SAS 
SAS is uh, people won't remember this, but it, most people in the armed forces in 1982 really didn't know what the SAS did. Mm. Yeah. Uh, they sort of knew they'd done the Iranian embassy siege um, 18 months before. They knew sort of they worked in Northern Ireland and did all, all sorts of things there. But when they came on board um, off Ascension, they sort of tucked themselves away and really didn't discuss anything with us. Uh, and they first appeared 40 years ago today and said, but here's our plan. We want to go up on this glacier. And uh, Stuart Cooper, who was my second pilot, said, well, you know, why do you want to do that? And they said, well, they won't expect us to come from that direction. <laughs> and, he then, and he then said, and he was a doer Scott, and he said, but they won't expect you to come by Polaris missile either. But that's no good reason to do it. Uh, and, you know, I can remember, even now, I can remember the looks from these SAS guys that could have melted steel at 10 feet, I'd say, at that point. Uh, and we said, look, have you heard about catabatic winds? Obviously they hadn't. Have you heard about icing? Have you done this? No, no, no. We want to go here. Um, and um, they then got onto um, their satellite phone back to Hereford, who got onto, I think, Downing Street, and the message came back, do as you're told. Um and we were going to do it anyway. The fleet air arm tends to sort of say, yeah, we're a can-do outfit. We'll go and do it. Um, and we said, but before we do it tomorrow, we'd like to take you, the major, Cedric Dells, up on the glacier and see what it's like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, May that have changed things somewhat, you think? Well, no, it didn't, because what we did is we took him up there and, and had a bit of a struggle getting up there with his um, head of his uh, mountain and Arctic warfare carder guy, John Hamilton. Yeah. And they were looking at it, and we were looking at it, and it was pretty nasty. Um, big winds, lots of snow, catabatics, obviously, um, and mountains. Uh, and we're in and out of cloud and mountains and all that sort of thing. Um and it, and it wasn't nice, there's no doubt about it. And the, the worst part of it was there was real crevicing on the glacier. Mm. And, and on the private intercom, we're going, how are you going to cross that then? <laughs> and the SCS guy's going, oh, it's a bit challenging. Yeah, a bit challenging. Uh, but um, Shackleton did this across this glacier, <laughs> I heard them say. Um, and uh, I'm thinking, this is getting... And then Cedric said to John Hamilton, you've got to get on, John. Really? And... John said, okay, we'll do it. So we went back down again, and Ian, flight commander, Stuart and myself are going, they can't be serious about this. But we got back to the ship, and they said, right, let's mount up, let's do it. That that phrase, you've got to get on, John, became open to all sorts of interpretation, didn't it? I remember re well, reading... That's, that's what Cedric says, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, right. <laughs> I, John, unfortunately, got killed in West Falkland, so he's not around to... To tell us, but um, it, it it seemed to me that he was saying to him, "You've got to get on the island." Yeah. Um, whether he was saying, "You've got to get on to the glacier," uh. I wasn't sure. But we ended up having to go up there, so everybody seemed to think that's what was meant. Um, I love Cedric, by the way; he's brilliant. Um, and um, uh, you know, we, we joke about this now because we both survived, but it's <laughs> um, but it was interesting. Yeah, uh, so we were amazed they were going to do it. And not, not just because of the weather and the conditions and things like that. It, it, it was really hostile, no question. And let's not forget minus 20 as well. Yeah. So, yeah, flying conditions horrendous. So it was you in the single-engine Wessex 3 and two Wessex 5s, which would be twin-engine, I guess. Yeah, yeah, taking, absolutely. Taking how many troops between the three of you? 
Well, we had 16 four by four man teams. Um, uh, the um, uh, the Wessex Fives uh, took, I think, yeah, they took six each with their kit, and uh, we took four, uh, standing room only in the back of us. I mean, the interesting thing was at the first approach, and I got some great pictures. Um, the edge of the glacier is about a thousand feet high, um, completely shrouded in cloud. We had a go at getting up on the glacier, but in the end, it was just too too windy. And I said to people, as soon as you enter cloud below the level of mountains, you, you tend to, your bottom starts to squeak a bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bad uh, you should be at the safety altitude, but mm. that you know your icing problems are too great then. Um, and I always say to people that. Flying on Fortuna was very much like flying down the streets of Manhattan in thick fog. Hmm. Um, that's what it was like. Um, so the first two attempts, we we failed to get very far up the glacier before it got really dangerous. We ran out of tail rotor control on one of the God. one of those runs. So we put the Wessex fives down on was, a sorry, was, that, was that was that due to due to wind? Uh, hmm? Was that due to wind, Chris? To, no, we, we we essentially got into a funneling. We couldn't see it, but we got into a funneling effect down one of the mountains. It was catabatic wind yeah. that was funneled by the shape of the mountain, and it, it just took us um, from a stern actually, uh, and the tail rotor just went. Mm, we'll stall, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, we just lost it, and it, we started, you know, as you know, counter rotating. Yeah. We had about uh, about six spins, I think, um, and then we got out of it. Um, I think Ian put the nose down, and away we went. It mm. was fine, but interesting. Um, but we 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 then went back to the Wessex fives and said, "Look, you know, we're gonna, we're going to refuel." Went back and refueled and said, "If the weather's okay," and you know, we got a bit of a clearance. Then got them up on the glacier, um, and it, it was challenging still, but it was clearer at that point. And then uh, landed them, um, took off, went back to the ships. Thank God for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and then um, we had a Force Eleven come through that night, um, <laughs> which, if it were in the tropics, would be called a hurricane. I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, the aircraft stayed out on deck, and we we thought the following day that the aircraft would be absolutely trashed, mm. um, but it wasn't. Um, and we had waves, you know, higher than the mainmast at one Blimey. stage. Um, quite, quite, quite entertaining. In fact, people were invited up onto the bridge to witness it uh, overnight because the captain thought everybody could tell their grandchildren about it. <laughs> um, so, he was so trying to keep morale up. And then, um, and then the following morning at breakfast, which was basically not at the table at all because you had to grip on the food and the, the drinks because it was so rough, Cedric came in and said, we've got a bit of a problem. And um, we said, who do you mean by we? <laughs> uh, and he said, this is this is the problem. The guys are dying up on the glassy. We've got to go and get them. And we thought, oh, yippee. Great. <laughs> and and um, anyway, the aircraft was okay. We, we did a quick chest, check, test flight, took the Wessex Fives with different pilots today, by the way, in the Wessex Fives. That was interesting. Yeah, okay. Um, so Mike Tidney and Georgeson hadn't flown the previous day. Um, so that was the first time they'd seen the conditions. Um, once again, we had a few problems getting up on the glacier, the two Wessex fires following us. Um, the radar didn't help because it wasn't great overland. Um, <clears throat> all it did do was give me an indication from the previous day of where some of the big obstructions were. Yeah. Um, but I was trying to work that out on the chart and also use my stopwatch on legs that 
frankly, I wasn't confident about, but oh. the pilots believed me, so that was fine. Chris, <laughs> so, just to go back a little bit, sorry, just in the in the Wessex 3, where are you sitting as an observer? Are you up front or are you... No, you're, you're in sitting the, in, in the, the dark in the back. Right. Yeah, so, it's um, you're sitting about, I suppose, eight feet in front of the where the tail pylon starts. Yeah. In the dark, you're behind the sonar and the radar and things like that. And but you're you you're on the lower part of the Wessex. And the pilot's upstairs on his own. Two of them. We two, always two flew pilots. as a four man crew. Right. Yeah. Okay. So two pilots. Uh, yeah, you needed those extra pair of eyes. You got the yeah, crewman in the in the sonar operator seat, but on this occasion he was sitting in an open door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to say, <laughs> totally iced up. Um, yeah. And he said, it's getting really cold here, boss. I said, come on, come on. You've got a goon suit on. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, yeah, and so eventually, the long and the short of it was that similar conditions the previous day, we managed to get up to where the guys were. Uh, all three of us landed, um, and we emplaned the guys. Um, and Mike Tidd in one of the West Six Five said, I think I can see a gap. Will you let me go? <clears throat> and I must confess, I said to the boss, I said, you really, we don't want to do that, boss. You know, if he loses us, the last thing we want to do is be transiting down there in cloud and we don't know where another Wessex is. Mm. And you were basically responsible for them as the only radar for, for guiding them anyway, Chris. Is that it right? It wasn't really that, Rob. No. The radar wasn't much help to tell okay. you the truth. What it was giving me was some indication of where we were on the ground. Yeah. relative to the features around. But it, it's not a terrain radar. It, no. It's designed for picking up submarine periscopes and things like that. Mm. Okay. It, it, very basic um, centimetric radar. I, yeah. I, I can't tell people how bad it was over land. Yeah. And the other problem is it, the radar sits behind the main gearbox. Mm. So you've got a 15-degree blind dark ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't actually see what you're running towards. Great design. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's not designed. I was doing most of it on dead reckoning, navigation, and timings, to tell you the truth. Um, but the point was that if you've got an observer doing the navigation, the pilots are not having to worry about the housekeeping and the navigation and all the other stuff and the communications. So they just go on with flying the aircraft, whether it's in, in cloud or in anything else. The thing we had in one thing we had in the Wessex 3, the Wessex 5 didn't have, was the auto hover that we had for hovering above the sonar when we were doing anti-submarine work. Yeah. So if you really, really got into trouble, you could bring it into a controlled hover where the aircraft itself would hold you steady. Yeah. Uh, and a number of times we, we were disorientated, so we just brought the thing into a hover and, and just held it there. The only snag with that is, of course, with crevicing, the radult thinks you're... Yeah. Um, higher than you are and forces you down up to the glacier. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so there's some interesting uh, ergonomics there. But but the fact of life is, you know, I'd like to think that the fact we had an observer <clears throat> meant the pilots didn't have to do all their own worrying, whereas I think Ian, Ian Georgeson and Mike Tidd did have to do that. Yeah. Anyway, M Mike Tidd uh, was given permission to take off and within about, I suppose, 30 seconds of transitioning, he just totally lost... Um, orientation went straight into a snow squall uh they they say in all the secondary books it was white out it wasn't white out it wasn't recirculating snow it, it was a fairly blinding snowstorm um and uh, and he basically stoofed in on his side and we thought oh no here we go and so the other wessex five and ourselves we we taxied over uh to the aircraft expecting there to be some serious casualties 
Uh, as it happened, uh, they all came out of it, cuts and bruises only, I think. Um, and we divided essentially the crew and 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 the uh, SAS guys between us. And we were quite heavy for us. Um, Ian obviously had took a few more. And we started off down the glacier. Um, and we said to Ian, you know, make sure you don't lose sight of us, you know, as we go down. But we're in and out of cloud, uh, snowstorms. Um, there's one occasion where we fled right in front of a, a mountain that we just couldn't see. The, the big problem was we had to do a sort of zigzag up through the mountains. It wasn't a straight ascent. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit challenging. Um, and we got to the glacier edge just before we got into Fort, Fortuna Bay. And Stuart was looking at the Wessex Five in his mirror. And he said, he's too thin. Um, and um, sure enough, what had happened is that Ian had been so concentrating on our, uh, our, our tail light, I think, um, is what he said afterwards, that he didn't notice actually the white of a ridge actually was, was sort of um, merging with the sort of snow and the cloud in front of him. We, we had gone over the ridge, uh, higher actually. Uh, he came in a bit lower and, and struck the ridge oh. and, and, and again, crashed. Now, now, Ian at that point, my flight commander said, right, we've got to go around and get him. I said, boss, we can't, we're heavy. And frankly, you know, we've got to get back to the ship and, and get these guys who are pretty shocked off, off, off the ship, off to the ship. Um, so we went back to the ship, um, refueled, came back with medical supplies, blankets, tried to raise them actually on, on, ra on radio, nothing. Um, and the weather was really, really bad, um, as bad as it had been. So we went back to the ship, and th this is about probably about one o'clock. Um, and the weather didn't really get any better until about half past four. When, when I say better, it better than it was. Mm. And we then came up with this plan that what we would do is we risk icing and go high this time above whatever was going on mm. to five thousand feet and uh, look down. And it was the last sortie, really, before sunset. And we think they might have been in trouble if they'd stayed. So we took the aircraft up to um, 5,000 feet above the glacier. Um, and um, I can tell you the whole of the front of the aircraft was iced. E even the pitot tube was iced. Wow. Um, and um, so, so From what I remember from the Wessex, it was actually quite – it generally was quite robust against icing, although it had no anti-icing features. If you went through a bit of ice, it was generally okay, but – yeah, that what, what was concerning us, to tell you the truth, was um, the, the ice that was breaking off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Which was, um, yeah, uh, to see that flying past past the window was something that the air crewman wasn't really happy with. Uh, <laughs> and, and I said, but you can't catch any. Um, it's, um, but anyway, so, but bizarrely, we got up on top and we looked down through a gap and we could see a, an orange light, life raft. Right. Um, and sure enough, it was the guys. They put a life raft up to keep themselves warm, of course, on the glacier. And we went down, and it was classic, yeah, sucker's gap. Because as, as, <laughs> as soon as we went through the gap, of course, it closed up. And um, uh, so we sort of paused at about, it must have been about 800 feet above the glacier. And um, what we did was we wound down in 50 feet steps on the flight control system. Mm -hmm. um, just hoping that we wouldn't smash in to the glacier. But anyway, it cleared uh, at about 200 feet above the glacier and, and 
we landed. Um, and uh, the SAS guys were okay, so were the crew, but the, you know, there, were, there were 16 of them. So um, it, that basically makes us a ton overweight. Yeah. Um, and we piled everybody in the back. We had to take their weapons off them. Um, the guys wanted to take their armor lights. We let them take their armor lights because they had them in Northern Ireland, but everything else had to stay. Yeah. And some of them were quite resistant. And, and Fitz said, look, this is the last train down the mountain. You know, if you don't catch this one, you're not making it. So they left their stuff. And we had a bit of a problem because we couldn't lift. Yeah. We were so heavy. Um, and in the end, we had to wait for an 80-knot gust of wind. <laughs> um, oh and, and we got a fairly strong 70-80 knot. And we staggered into the air. I mean, <clears throat> I've never heard a gearbox over talking, but it certainly was. Yeah. Um, we got airborne. A uh, bit of a struggle to get down through the mountains again, uh, obviously. Uh, but got out to uh, sea, happy, happy. And then we we then realized that we probably wouldn't be able to hover alongside the ship. Mm. <laughs> so, because normally what you do is you hover alongside the ship and move over land on lashings to your medals but it um <laughs> uh, it was going to have to be a different plan so we got the ship to get on a course that gave us a green three zero wind which is basically 30 degrees on the starboard bow and we were going to do an offset approach straight in so we had to basically come in and, and do a controlled almost a running landing yeah because if you'd done it with brakes on you'd have just tipped over mm. Uh, and basically, th there was a silent understanding that if we messed it up, we'd go over the side uh, on the starboard side rather than smash into the ship. Yeah. Um, and that's what we did. We um, we came in low, and Ian beautifully brought it in. Control crash, undercarriage, very robust, as he said. Um, and we, we were static, and we got the lashings on, and that was it. How much room do you think you had across the ship to to land? To do the running landing in? Uh, well, we put it on port side, uh, 12 feet. Oh, <laughs> and presumably uh, that deck was moving up and down a bit as well if the weather conditions were that bad. Yeah. Don't want to make it too easy for pilots. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, Chris, what was the reaction after that? The SAS guys very much up until that point had kept themselves to themselves, hadn't they? Uh, after that event, they must have been eternally grateful to you guys. Well, yeah, and then, then then they decided they wanted to go in by boat. Having trashed two of our helicopters, <laughs> they, they decided they want to go in by boat. <laughs> and um, they convinced the captain that very night uh, to take the ship close inshore. You know, we're not going to expect them from this direction again. Okay, very close inshore at least. And to put five Gemini inflatables over the side. Now, we were only about probably less than a kilometre away from the Argentine positions, and we went in really quiet and silent. And you've got a 6,000-ton warship sitting off the Argentine positions, and this is after, as you know, the Royal Marines had had a go at an Argentinian mm. corvette, the Guerrico, um, when they'd invaded. Um, so the captain wasn't really happy. But anyway, the, the other lesson we learned from this is if you take five Gemini engines from the nice warm ship and you put it into freezing conditions outside, they tend not to work. <laughs> And so while we were sitting off the Argentine positions, all you could hear were these demented lawnmowers trying to start. <laughs> <laughs> the long and, long and the short of it is that they 
they managed to get three going and they said they'd tow the other two. Um, <laughs> and that's what they did. And we very gratefully went back out to sea again. And and then again, the following morning at breakfast, in comes Cedric Dells. And guess what the line was? I've <laughs> got a bit of a problem. We've got a problem. <laughs> Didn't they lose a couple of guys in the Gemini for a few days out to sea? Well, no, what happened was two, two of the Geminis hadn't made it and they couldn't couldn't locate them. So we had to go off and look for them. And um, uh, so I worked out what the tide and the, and the wind was going to do. Uh, and we started a sort of square search about 30 to 40 miles off shore to the northeast. Um, and we didn't find anything. And... and with about half an hour's endurance to go, I, I said, well, let's extend it downwind of it because it could have been worse than we thought. And at 62 miles off South Georgia, we found one of these Geminis with three Yetis in it. <laughs> and, um, and we got them in, inboard and took them back. Uh, and they were on their way to South Africa. There's no question about it. And, uh, the, the other Gemini made landfall and just, just had a duff radio uh, they found out later, but these guys were very lucky indeed. Yeah, goodness me! I, and I, this, you were searching for them in the aircraft that you'd just overstressed the gearbox for. That in yeah. peacetime would have been probably scrapped at that stage. Yeah, uh, do you want to live forever? <laughs> well, a little bit longer than twenty-three or whatever you were at the time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but you know, you you know what it's like in your twenties. You know, you're invincible, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh. You eventually um, later on. Uh, Chris, I think I'm right in saying that the, the SAS guys who were still with you on Antrim were then transferred to another ship. And at that time, I think Cedric Dells wrote a letter both to your captain and indeed to the flight uh, to praise you quite rightly for, for everything you had done. Yeah, he's a good bloke. <laughs> <laughs> well, it got you a mention in dispatches, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah, quite right too. I've got my flight commander a DSO, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then and then, then the submarine turned up. <laughs> well, yeah, tell us about that, because the, there was an idea that something was around uh, and you had to persuade your captain, didn't you, to, to let you launch in, in Humphrey and go searching. Now, had Humphrey got his sonar back in by this stage? No, still no sonar. Yeah, what happened? Um, now, we're talking about the um, <clears throat> 23rd. Um now, one of the things that used to happen on board warships is that you used to get fairly high-grade intelligence, but it was only accessible to people who had developed vetting, and that was probably only about four of the officers. Now, there are indications from GCHQ that I know now know about that a submarine might have sailed from Mar del Plata, um, the Santa Fe. But what really alerted us, we picked up a teletype uh, message that was on high-frequency uh, radio, and in the South Atlantic, that can only come from probably a warship or, or a submarine. And we're pretty sure there weren't any Argentinian warships around. And so <clears throat> essentially, uh, there's a very good book by Edward Young called One of Our Submarines from World War II. And if you want to fight submarines, it's a really good book to read because uh, it tells you how they think. Um, anyway, we started talking about the fact that he couldn't possibly be over in South Georgia reacting to us because he would have had to sail, you know, eight, nine days before. So he's obviously over here for another mission, and that was probably resupplying the garrison, <clears throat> perhaps even bringing more troops, fuel, ammunition, things like that, which is what, what he was, in fact. 
Now, the captain's immediate reaction was to take all the ships out to 200 miles outside the exclusion zone. Now, that was really because we didn't have the rules of engagement at that stage to engage anything. And we really didn't fancy taking the first shot from um, the submarine. We also had Argentinian Hercules and 707s flying around looking at us from distance, outside engagement range, but still looking at us. Um, So they knew we were there. So in the end, um, I I was quite pugnacious in those days. And (laughs) I I said to the captain, you know, we really should be going after this thing. You know, we're pretty invulnerable in um, a helicopter. Let us go and look for him. Um, and in the meantime, I surreptitiously told my maintainer to put the sonar back in again. Ah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so um, in the end, long and the short of it is that there's a lot of faffing around about should we go on, no, we can't while the submarine's around. And I said to the captain, look, it's pretty obvious to me he's going to go in basically just before dark because we've got icebergs and things like that around. Um and he'll deliver his stores, and then he'll come out, I think, before sunup the following morning on the surface. <clears throat> because you've got these icebergs, ice flows, and things like that. You don't want to run into those underwater. <clears throat> so I said, look, why don't you let us go in, have a look for him. I'll take a couple of depth charges, and if I find him, I'll rattle him. <laughs> and then we had a problem with the rules of engagement. But what we managed to do was convince Whitehall, that the combination of the surveillance aircraft and the submarine meant that they were up to no good. Mm. Well, we didn't know that, Mm. but it convinced them. And we had the rules of engagement to engage. So together with that, the captain said, okay, we'll go into 80 miles and you can go in and have a look for him. We also put a a links up from HMS Brilliant that had joined the previous night. He had a torpedo just in case. And we also had three wasps, two from Endurance that was pooling around, one from Plymouth uh, with AS-12 anti-surface missiles in case actually there was interference by Argentinian surface ships, Mm. uh, but also could be used against a surface submarine, sort of. Mm -hmm. Um, But that that was the issue. So uh, at about 10 past eight on the 25th, um, we took off, we transited in, the weather was awful, as usual. Um, didn't transmit on radio or radar, so we wouldn't alert him. Um, <clears throat> DR navigation again, um, and uh, arrived over Cumberland Bay, which is this huge bay in which Griplican exists. Probably the, the finest natural harbour in the South Atlantic, by the way. Mm. Um, and um, basically lots of icebergs around, lots of bergy bits, and about half a mile viz. <laughs> So we couldn't see anything. <clears throat> now, um, I said to Ian at this point, if I give one sweep on my radar, all he's going to hear is bzz. Now, that could be spurious. If you hear bzz, bzz, you know that's a radar. So it has to be one blip. Now, essentially, the radar goes around once every second, and, and the actual image on the radar is only there for about five seconds mm-hmm. before, <laughs> before it fades. Yeah. So one had to be quite agile. Now, what I've been doing the, the previous days is I've been actually calling some of these icebergs by name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I designated them various English kings. So I had Edward <laughs> I and Richard II and all sorts <laughs> of things. So I knew roughly where the icebergs had been, uh, and they didn't move much. So 
So I did my one sweep on the radar, and right next to Edward III, remember it distinctly, <laughs> there, there was a, uh, I could have called it the Black Prince, but that's, <laughs> that's being pretentious. Um, but right next to Edward III was one that I didn't recognise, I hadn't designated. So I said, look, you know, it's about five miles away, so we go and have a look. <clears throat> and we went and had a look. Uh, and sure enough, it was a submarine. God. He was just going down, fin above the surface, mast up. And then Ian said, oh, I suppose it could be Conqueror, because Conqueror had been designated to come and screen us to the northwest. And I remember distinctly saying, it's a submarine, he's getting it. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't care. You know? um, but we had a, I had a look at it, and it was definitely a conventional, and we didn't have any conventionals around at that time. So worked out the ballistic throw, ran in, over the top, two depth charges, both went alongside him, um, blew his back end out a bit. He yawed to port and you could see oil coming out the back end, a lot of air as well. Uh, he, he'd actually split a ballast tank and a fuel tank. He came sort of frotting to the surface. Uh, and what was really irritating is that Stuart Cooper always carried a camera, but that morning when we manned up, he'd split the seal on his goon suit. <laughs> So he, cha he changed into his other goon suit uh, and, of course, forgot to transfer the camera. Oh, no. So as, as, um, as Ian did the sort of wing over, well, near victory roll, <laughs> um, um, we said, get the shot, get the shot. And uh, Stuart said, I haven't got my camera. Oh, uh, no. And Chris, am I right in saying, and I, this may be quite wrong, that was the first attack on a submarine Anywhere in the world since the Second World War, since the Second World War. Um, yeah, the uh, Pakistanis lost a submarine, but it, it lost it on its own mine when it was trying to lay mines in the uh, the uh, Indian uh, Pakistan. That one doesn't War count. In, in, in 1971, it, it was the first attack. Yeah, by by an aircraft since 1945. First attack by a helicopter. That, that's the point. Ever, ever, ever. Yeah, yeah. And do you yeah. know what happened? Did it surface and went back, limped back? On the surface? No, it basically was sinking by the stern. That was the, its real problem. Its it starboard engine was still going okay. He, he went back on the surface. He was well below. What we did, because we didn't know what condition he was in, we didn't want him to dive. So what we did was we dropped the Mark 46 torpedo underneath him yeah. to dissuade him from diving because Mark yeah. 46 doesn't attack surface ships. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, the captain afterwards said, there's no way I was going to dive with that torpedo in the water. We went into the dip, got him on sonar just in case he dived, and machine gunned his sonars at the same time, so he'd be deaf if he tried to engage any of the ships. Oh. Um, at that point, we tried to bring in Plymouth's um, wasp, and Endurance's wasp decided to join in uninvited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting in the diary. <laughs> this Chris, no, you're obviously it wasn't an RAF pilot, was it? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but you know, it, it, you know, one thing that really uh, irritated me, and I'll say it now. I can say it after forty years. <laughs> is this desperate attempt to get on the score sheet all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and Endurance weren't told to launch. They just got airborne and started shooting up the submarine. It wasn't necessary. It was knackered already. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the only Argentinian injuries occurred, you know, one guy had to have his legs sawn off because of one of these things hitting the fin. You know, it's unnecessary. I, I, I feel quite irritated about it. You know, the guy was knackered. He was out of the game. And, and all the while you've got, you know, Hooray, Henry, some endurance. You know, <laughs> trying, to, trying to, as I say, 
make a name for themselves. Yeah. Irritated, I really am. Yeah. But but Chris, the, the the point to make here is that you fired the first shots of the Falklands conflict with with these death charges. Yeah, of the of the main conflict, Rob. Yeah. yeah, obviously the guys who defended South Georgia and obviously tried to resist in the Falklands on the uh, overnight first and second of April and on the third of April had had fired some shots. But I think for the main campaign, that mm. that's the case. Yeah. And you you said in the diary that it actually it, it was the perfect outcome because you'd totally disabled the submarine. It it managed to hobble into the um, into the bay. And uh, everyone got off it and was taken prisoner of the war. There were no casualties. And for you as a, as a seaman, you know, you, you don't like to see other sailors, you know, yeah. get, getting killed. And that that was the perfect outcome. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, <clears throat> I've often thought that had he been a bit deeper and we dropped it as his periscopes uh, basically were breaking surface uh, on the way down, it probably would have killed the submarine because the pressure would have broken his back. Yeah. The very fact we hit him while he was, you know, the hull was basically... Um, a wash meant that the some of the blast was dissipated through the surface um, and didn't hit him so much. And it was quite interesting looking at the submarine afterwards. Every single electronic box in that submarine had sheared off the bulkhead. Wow! Um, the star, the port engine was completely knackered. The propeller shaft was bent. Uh, as I said, there were two split air and and fuel tanks aft. Um, and what was really entertaining was they had this big bowl of ravioli that they had in the control room that they were sort of passing around, and this had exploded as well. And there's ravioli all over the dials and instruments. And, and as, without, without being too modest, how good a shot was it, your shot, to to get the depth charge in the right place? Well, if you, um, if you, you have to allow 20, 20 yards of submarine speed for the forward throw. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was doing eight knots. It was 160 yards. The forward throw of two depth charges is 164 yards. So he made it really easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> really did. So yeah. drop it on top of him. They're going to go in. And, and basically it went in. One of them hit him and bounced off on the port side um, about just after fin. And the other one went in starboard side just forward of the fin. Chris, have you ever had a chance, uh, and I'm, I'm forgive me because I've not read your book yet, have you ever had a chance to meet any of the crew or the captain of the submarine subsequent to that incident? It's a good question. That that night we had we had the captain uh, on board um, as a prisoner, obviously, yeah. uh, and I speak Spanish, so I had to do the interpreting. So we, we had the major of marine, captain of marines, he came up, he was furious, absolutely furious. He'd been delivered by the submarine, and three hours later, he's a prisoner. Um, so he, he wasn't very happy at all. But um, the, um, I spoke to Horatio Bikane, the submariner. He was really really in shock, you know, obviously. Uh, and I said to him, I'm really sorry about your submarine. He said, I, I just can't believe it. I said, I, he said, I, I can't believe you attacked me without warning. <laughs> and I sort of go, I gave him a sort of look as if to say, you must be joking, you know. <laughs> Not only, you know, are you a danger to us, but actually you're a submarine. Mm-hmm. You're, safe. you're going to get it. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's an observer's dream to catch a submarine. Yeah. And uh, there it was. But yeah, he, he was, he was so shell shocked. And he, he said, he said in Spanish, I really screwed up, didn't I? Wow. I said, look, I felt like saying to him, look, I spent my time training on Soviet submariners, you know, so, but, yeah. um, but in fact, um, I said to him, look, you know, it was an unlucky place to be in. You know, you, you might not have expected us, obviously. Um, but war is war, isn't it? What's really interesting, though, I was giving a lecture at the Honourable Artillery Company last November, 
And the ambassador to Buenos Aires, British ambassador, came up to me and he said, I, I want to have a word with you. And he said, my son in Buenos Aires used to play football uh, with uh, boys whose fathers had been in the Santa Fe. Really? Mm. And I, they said, I want them to say thank you to, the, uh, thank you, to you uh, for actually you know, letting them get back in and off the ship. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, do you think there was any fear amongst the crew about going back to the sort of Galtieri regime as failures, if you like? Um, I spoke to some of them. Um, I, I didn't detect it. I mean, it's quite interesting. One of the uh, I went to a Welsh college at Oxford, and one of the guys we captured was from Patagonia. He was from the Welsh community there, mm. and he actually mm. was going to go to Oxford the following Oct- October. <laughs> and his sole concern was whether he was going to get his place or not. <laughs> and, and, and I said, no, probably not. We're still at war. Yeah. So, so best, best the war ends. No. Yeah. yeah. Um, but. Um, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. The big problem for Argentina throughout the war, I think, <clears throat> was that they really hadn't been in war with anybody before. Mm. They'd, they'd had some sort of border tussed up with Bolivia, I think, in the 1870s. <laughs> but, you know, they didn't have the, the military culture. I mean, one of the things I remember thinking when we went across to the Falklands proper was, you know, we, we are standing on giant shoulders here. Mm. If, if we mess this up, what would Drake, Nelson, mm. Rodney, mm. all these others think? Uh, and the Argentinians didn't have that sort of heritage, and it counts. It's you know it's part of the moral component of fighting power that you you have that heritage and tradition. Yeah, that's really uh, interesting. And I think it's important. And just going back to the the, the crashed um, Wessexes, did anyone ever go back to those? And um... yeah, it's a good question. We we went up, we went back up there when we came back in um, in May. We went back up there on a really nice day, mm. <laughs> um, uh, gin clear day. We went up there to pick up some of the secret stuff and some of the more sensitive munitions that were up there. Mm. Um, and so, and of course, surprise, surprise, we're up there and the weather changed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I must say, there's a real feeling, though, of, you know, do we dare go up there? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it nearly got us the last time. <laughs> it might get us this time. A bit of a feeling of that, actually. Yeah. Um, but no, I, <clears throat> uh, we went up, got the stuff. And in fact, when I went back in York, when I was... Uh, Commanding York in '89, I went up in the links, and we we had a look, uh, and the and the two Wessexes were gradually being entombed in the glacier and going down the hill a bit wow. because of the way glaciers operate. I mean, one thing I failed to mention, by the way, is that when we took off finally with the SAS guys, we, we found that we'd landed on an ice bridge which collapsed underneath us as we <sighs> took off. And I can honestly say that the inside of glaciers are really deep blue. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't something I was going to share with the guys as we sort of slumped down. I have to tell you, we went down about 10 feet. Oh, and I had this sort of vision of the, the rotors actually contacting with the surface of the glacier. So it had a lot of surprises for us, I can tell you. Goodness wow. me. You talked about going then um, over to the Falkland Islands proper, um, Chris, and there was another first, wasn't it, for Humphrey? Because didn't you then, weren't you part of the sort of the first insertion of the main landing forces that then ultimately led to the recovery of the islands? Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, <clears throat> we had a bit of a, what we were doing uh, when we were off the Falklands is we were taking SES patrols onto the Falklands in order to, shall we say, discourage Argentinian patrolling. Um, and the Argentinians got wise to this after a while, and the officers um, decided they weren't going to patrol with their men. Um, they'd let the lads go out and do it, and the upshot of that was, of course, the lads would walk about 100 yards down the road 
sit under a hedge or a, or a wall and radio in that they were five miles away or eight miles away, nothing, nothing happening. Mm. Um, so great, you know, the officers staying in the nice and warm. Um, but there was a problem with an Argentinian company on Fanning Head, which was at the entrance to San Carlos. They had a recall, recallist rifle or two, and they were going to be a problem. Uh, and so Antrim, the ship, and Humphrey, the helicopter, um, had to take the SBS in. And the idea was that the SBS would go in, uh, surround the company. Uh, Antrim would use its 4.5-inch guns to shoot naval gunfire support at these guys. As the guys ran away, the SBS would kill them. Um, that was the plan. And so we embarked another first, uh, another Wessex on the back in addition to our own. And there's a picture of it sitting in the starboard side lane. Never happened before. Um, and essentially, we had to go in, weather not great again, um, <laughs> thick fog. Um, and again, at night, no no night vision goggles, navigating by stopwatch and with inertial navigation, basically. And I also had to control by radar the Wessex 5 in with his his chaps. And there were times when you were actually quite separate from each other and you were having to navigate Ian Stanley and Humphrey and, and the Wessex 5, which was also some miles away from you. Yeah, I had to, I had to navigate him in. So the first thing we did was put a Bardic T down, which is a sort of essentially a T-shaped landing light mm. um, arrangement. So we had to do that. Um, and you're right, Rob, you know, I had to control the Wessex 5 in by radar, almost doing a ground controlled approach while I was flying myself. Um, that's something that you're trained to do, by the way. Um, but the conditions were, were pretty marginal. Um, and on the last time, it was a bit ungrateful of the Argentinians. We actually got shot at. <laughs> so, it's, um, uh, so that added to it all. But it worked. We got the guys on the ground and Antrim fired about 50 rounds. The Argentinians scattered. The SBS swept them up uh, and we were able to get the amphibs into uh, San Carlos. I mean, let, let me tell you what happened at the start of that because it was both humorous and naive. They decided they wanted these Argentinians to surrender rather than get killed. Mm-hmm. So they kitted this marina with a yoke system with two speakers they'd taken from uh, one of the mess decks <laughs> they hooked it up to a megaphone that a major called rod bell was going to use and, and he basically he'd grown up in costa rica and uh, so he spoke spanish and the idea was that he was going to say in spanish you know you're surrounded you need to surrender right you could see the marine with the two speakers wasn't impressed with this at all <laughs> um, and, and surprise, surprise, as soon as Rob Bell went, you know, do you want to surrender? He was met with a sort of blast automatic fire. So that, that, that failed at the first the first presentation. So, yeah, what a great idea that was. <laughs> and Chris, while Antrim was in, I think, in in that area of, of uh, the Falklands, Antrim actually got hit. Yeah, well, we were the air defence coordinator for um, the first day in um, San Carlos. Now, we were out in Falkland Sound between the two islands. All the warships were. Uh, and uh, Admiral Woodward would have said to you that it was deliberate you know, to tempt the Argentinians to attack us. It wasn't that at all. We were stationed there because we were doing anti-submarine warfare as well. Mm. Um, we didn't know where one of the other submarines was, so we had to do that. Um, the long and the short of it was we had about 70 raids that day. Cool. Um, um, we got attacked by some Mirage 
um, shot up the ship. The aircraft itself got punctured with over 100 sort of splinter holes. It had fuel pissing out the back. One of my maintainers. Yeah. Yeah. One of my my maintainers was blinded, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. to this day, still blind. Um, And uh, Ian got injured, and my air crewman got shrapnel all over his legs. And one bit hit him right in the gusset between the legs. Oh. And he was lying on the flight deck saying, they've got me nuts, they've got me nuts. <laughs> and I said, Fitz, they haven't got you nuts. You know, it might hurt, but, you know, do your teeth hurt? Because I remember reading in Gerald of Wales, if you get castrated, yeah. your teeth hurt. Really? <laughs> Is that the first thing that hurts? That. I remember that. Okay, your teeth hurt. Yeah. Um, so, um, so that's, the you know, obviously the advantage of being a historian. So I said, you're okay, you're fine, Fitz. It's great. No, no, they got me nuts, they got me nuts. Well, he, he had some injuries, but his nuts were okay. Um, but uh, your poor old aircraft, yeah, had about 100 holes in it. Uh, all, the, all the looming had gone and oh. also looked pretty sad, actually. Um, and I have to say, the Matsu unit, the, the aircraft repair unit that had come down in one of the repair ships, Stenner Sea Spread, got the aircraft flying with the flight again within five days. Brilliant. Wow. Wow. Absolutely really? brilliant. They sealed all the tanks, they repaired the looming, and, uh, it, you know, you couldn't do that today. No. You just don't have the skills, but it was brilliant. And we were flying again within five days. <laughs> uh, and um, check test flight was interesting. Um, <laughs> um, but, no, it was great. And, um, and so that happened. But in the course of one of the Mirage attacks, we got a bomb that went in. The only angle I think it could have gone in between the sea slug launcher and the magazine flash doors. Now, if it had got, gone in the magazine or hit one of the missiles, we'd have been vaporized because mm. we had 38 missiles in that magazine. And these missiles, the sea slug, were actually mini V2 rockets yeah, right. with wraparound boosters. And they went Mark II. And they were a really good missile, actually, against, you know, sort of 707s and high-flying mm. Russian aircraft like bears or badgers. But they weren't great, obviously, low-level. We, we used to use them as bird scarers. We saw a formation <laughs> coming in. We used to fire it down the bearing. And and mostly these aircraft would go and do somebody else rather than us. So it worked. It was, we, called it, we, we called it the gash mode. Uh, give, give RGs the shits mode. Uh, and, and I have to say, one of them landed ashore and just completely demolished the top of a mountain. I mean, it was great. We, we had this plan for taking out Argentinian observation positions. If we if we found any, you could just use the missile to do it. But anyway, we we we. we caught this 1,000-pound bomb, British-made. It went through eight bulkheads and landed in the afterheads, which is the toilets. <laughs> uh, I've got a picture of it sitting between two of the two of the traps. Um, and, um, <laughs> no one on yeah, them at the time, I really hope. I don't know, not at action stations. No. Um, so um, so a bit of a problem. Um, and this thing stayed with us all day while we had the, the rest of the air raids. Um cradled basically by lots of mattresses and sandbags and two sailors who really weren't told the implications of <laughs> babysitting this thing. Um, but at the end of the day, we had a really remarkable feat of engineering. We cut through the decks, including the flight deck, to get at the thing. We put some shear legs at the top on a pulley system and two EOD guys bravely put it into a cradle. We brought it up onto the flight deck, took it down to the quarter deck, put it over the side, and 15 minutes later, we got a signal from Sink Fleet saying, on no account, move the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Which had been made in Derby. 
Is that right? You you yeah. went and looked yeah, at the it, name, didn't you? The nameplate was Derby, yeah. And um, that's fine. I mean, you know, they were <laughs> delivering, you know, bombs to us from Britain. We were eating corned beef sandwiches from Argentina. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Seems, seems like fairness. Yeah, <laughs> bizarre, isn't it? So the Argentine surrender then came on the on the 14th of June. And, and eventually, you guys, you had to stick around for a little bit, I think, before you could head home. But, but what was the journey home like? And what was it like when you finally arrived back in Portsmouth? Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting because it's a long way back. And, yeah. and so all of us had sort of charts indicating, you know, the line where we were going back up again. And um, I did some watch keeping on the bridge because I'm a, obviously a career seaman officer. Um, people generally sort of got suntans. I mean, the, the commander, the second in command said, look, we've got to go back looking pretty, pretty ship shape. So there's a lot of maintenance and cleanliness routines, things like that. Catching up with the mail. Doing the sort of things you normally do in peacetime. To How many had you lost from Antrim personnel? Well, wise? we've lost uh, about 28 injured. You know, when we got strafed, we got some people injured. Uh, they all recovered. I mean, uh, the worst one was Terry Bullingham with his blindness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Royal Marine Sergeant Major lost a kidney, I think. Um, others got sort of broken bones. Uh, you know, we, we had a 30 mil rocket attack as well. That, that caused some casualties on the upper deck. We were very lucky. We didn't lose anybody dead. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we came back and, and you yeah, know, Antrim had a good war. Um, we did all sorts of other things that were fairly useful. Um, I think the most remarkable thing in those days was the ability of the Navy to get its kit, both the ships and the aircraft back in the fight again. Yeah. yeah. People had real sort of hand skills that, yeah. and that you don't have now. No. Yeah. It, it's, uh, that, that's, that's what we've lost, I think. Yeah. Um, you couldn't imagine you couldn't get Humphrey back together again uh, oh, like that yeah. nowadays. No, he's back. In, he's in museum now in Yeovilton, isn't he? Yeah, he, he's in Yeovilton. It disappointed me because we delivered the aircraft to Yeovilton uh, in a complete working state. You could have flown it. Yeah. And, and what was disappointing is over the next couple of years, they robbed robbed Humphrey of stores to put in Seekings. Oh. Um, you know, real Philistines. So I'm going to start a campaign soon, I think, putting Humphrey back together again. Oh, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Like Um, that. um, Because there's enough Wessex 3 stuff around uh, to be able to redo it. In fact, there's a Wessex 3 at HMS Sultan that that poses as Humphrey on on Navy days. Well, we can't have that. No, no. (laughs) I'm going to try and and get the kit out of Humphrey. It was used for a TV documentary um, into real Humphrey. Brilliant. but I'm, I'm giving a I'm giving a presentation with Ian and Stuart on Friday night at the Fleet Aero Museum in front oh. of Humphrey. Oh, super! Um, which is the 40th anniversary, of course, of getting the SAS off, yeah. off the glacier. Yeah. yeah. In your diary, you you write a few you know lessons learned during your time out there, and and some really interesting ones. One of them, one of the points you make is how much you missed Ark Royal and what the the old fairy gannets w- would have given you, which would have been. Airborne early warning right there and then, which you just did not have. Nobody yeah, had. but you see, that was because, you know, one of the prevailing assumptions uh, of the early 80s uh, amongst uh, my olders and betters was that we would never, ever have to fight, uh, a, well, a number of things we wouldn't fight. We'd never do an amphibious landing against an opposed shore. Mm-hmm. We'd never operate outside the NATO area without allied, brackets, US support. <laughs> um, and we'd never operate anywhere without the RAF. Well, that worked out, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I won't ask you for your thoughts on the RAF contribution. No, because... no, no. I, I'm okay with the RAF. I'm a member of the RAF club. It's, oh, indeed. It's great. Good to see. Well done. <laughs> well done. But, so, uh, yeah, Chris, so arrival back in Portsmouth. Alison was there to meet you along with Uncle Tony, my godfather. Tony, <laughs> and, and the whole family were there. And that, that was quite a, a moment, I guess, because you've been at sea for well over 100 days by this stage. What are you trying to say? Well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> No, no, it, it's fine. I mean, it, it's quite interesting. We came back and um, obviously you do procedure alpha where you man the upper deck. Mm. And um, we, we came in. It was a July day. I think it was a Saturday. And um, I just couldn't believe how many people there were there. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable numbers of people, tens of thousands of people. Yeah. And um, um, it we thought, well, somebody else must be coming in behind us, Hermes or something like that. Yeah. But in fact, they were all there to greet us. And one of the things I'm always very proud about is that when our ships have been to war, you know, Portsmouth and Plymouth both know how to bring their ships home. Yeah. And, and uh, I'll confess to you guys, it's probably the only time I've nearly welled up as an adult. Really? It's um, really emotional. You should meet Jess. <laughs> <laughs> he does it every week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Most things. <laughs> no, seriously, it's yeah. very emotional, you know. And um, uh, but yeah, it's um, yeah. Uh, and what really rotted me up was that Alison said to me, "Oh, you are coming home tonight, aren't you?" Uh, <laughs> and I said, "Well, I rather want to fly the aircraft back to Portland tomorrow with Ian." And so she she went to my captain and and said, "Can you order Chris to come home with me tonight?" And he ordered me to go home with my. Oh wife. yeah. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> And I wanted to go home with my aircraft. Yeah. yeah. Oh dear, that tricky moment. So Alison won. Uh, let's call it a draw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got her back. But Chris, other lessons learned. I mean, what was the thinking about how how the British forces dealt with the whole conflict, and what we might have learned since then in terms of you know the current strength of of our armed forces and so on. Uh, I think uh, it's fair to say, and I say it in the book, that the Falklands saved the Royal Navy. Uh, if the not review had gone through from 1981, we'd have ended up with submarines, nimrods and anti-submarine forces and nothing else. We'd lost the carriers, the amphibious forces, probably the marines as well. Yeah. So the, the Navy that we have today is a direct descendant of what went to the Falklands. Uh, and if you think about it, what has happened is we've mutated from being predominantly a North Atlantic, um, Norwegian sea force, Greenland, Iceland, U UK, Faroes Gap, into being a global Breton naval force. Uh, and that transition couldn't have happened without this idea that somehow we need to go 8,000 miles to go and do something by sea. Mm. Um, we're in a maritime era again for the United Kingdom. The army, frankly, doesn't know what it's for. It doesn't know whether it's supposed to do high-end war fighting or... Uh, sort of peace support or high impact, low footprint, until it sorts itself out. It's got no right to say how many soldiers it should have. Mm. Um, and I think the future belongs to what I call high impact, low footprint forces. And that privileges air and maritime, frankly. Mm. Um, uh, and if the army look, wants to look for a role, it needs to look at what the Royal Marines are doing, frankly. Mm. Um, highly enabled um, high-impact forces that have a light footprint, uh, and that, that's the future. Um, if you look at Ukraine today, Ukraine's a 20th century war. Yeah. 
uh, and this is what people are missing. Uh, every every component of that, apart from the use of open source intelligence and some cyber, there's not a lot of cyber, is a 20th century war. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got to configure ourselves today for 21st century wars. Uh, and that involves engaging the whole of society. You've seen the economic aspects. You've seen the attack on utilities and on infrastructure in Ukraine. You know, every time a Russian submarine with cruise missiles is within range of the United Kingdom, we need to start paying attention. Mm. Uh, not just ballistic nuclear uh, submarines. Mm. That's where it's changing today. And as I keep saying to people, the the sea is the physical equivalent of the World Wide Web. (laughs) Everything that goes virtually on the web, okay, really goes by sea, over it, under it, or across it. Uh, and unless we realize that that is actually the engine of globalization, uh, and if we lose control of the sea to China or Russia or, or both of them, uh, we ain't doing global Britain. We're not actually going to thrive. Mm. Um, and so, you know, the Ukraine war is the last of the continental wars, I think, in, in the traditional sense. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to have, as I said, high-impact, low-footprint forces. And I do believe in future... The question is going to be, how few boots do you put on the ground? We're not going to see a return to the British Army of the Rhine anytime soon. No, no, you're not. British Army of, of, no, nowhere. Um, (laughs) um, Basically, let let me put something to you. In the Second World War, if you wanted to destroy the building you're in, it would have taken nearly 240,000 pounds of bombs Mm. because you can't do it. You can put a precision weapon with 10-pound warhead through that window behind you. We've got to do the same with boots on the ground and say how few precision-guided boots on the ground do we need to actually achieve objectives? Simple as, as that. It's as the most exp- expensive component that we deploy is, is the human beings. As what we'd consider a military expert, I know we're sort of going a little bit off, to- off the topic here, how, how surprised are you at the moment with the way the Russians are, are operating in, um, in Ukraine? I'm not surprised because I, I know what their doctrine is and I know, you know, the state of some of their equipment and their training and, and, and collective performance. So I'm not surprised. You know, if you, you send armour in against anti-armour uh, uh, without infantry, you're going to get your armour pasted. It's as simple as that. If you, you, you don't get control of the air and, you know, frankly, the Russians haven't got control of the air, you're not going to be able to put your aircraft in positions where they can do ground attack uh, and all sorts of other things. Essentially, the, the good old Ukrainians had a good look at Russian doctrine and practice and said, right, yeah, we'll counter that, and this is how we're going to do it. But don't underestimate how big the Ukrainian army is. It's the biggest army in Europe. Hmm. So, so their fielded forces are actually quite substantial as well. And so they've also got the biggest air force on paper. Hmm. Um, so they're not insubstantial in their own right. The basic problem for the, the Russians is that they – they did the classic thing. They they underestimated their opponent because they thought 2014, that was easy. We'll do it again. They also didn't look at the topography. You look at the north of uh, Ukraine, it's heavily forested. Uh, you've got mixed forest and steppe in the middle. And in the south, you've got steppe country, which is good tank country. Well, there's no surprise that the Russians have done quite well in the south. Uh, and people are missing this at the moment. Um, but if you look at essentially the collective training the corruption. Uh, the thing that really did for them, I think, guys, is sitting on the ground in the cold and wet for the best part of eight weeks before they went in. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I've been reading on Russian Twitter. I speak Russian. <laughs> I've been reading on Russian Twitter that the 
um, Russian soldiers were so cold, they were sort of stealing radiators and hooking them up to the batteries in their tanks. <laughs> Wow. Uh, and so when it came to start the tanks, they didn't start. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, it, it's just simple things like that. And I think hanging around for eight weeks and not expecting to go in, by the way, I think that decision mm. was made over a very short period by Putin and his FSB buddies Do who seemed to direct the strategy of the campaign. If you look at Gerasimov and Shoigu's faces the day they were told they were going in, that, even by Russian standards, they were looking pretty good. <laughs> That's really interesting. Oh, Chris, well, look, in terms of Humphrey, we'll, yeah. do, we'll do our bit in terms of the camp- campaign to get him back to his uh, you know, great. F- full strength again. But thank you so much for joining, joining us. It's really good to hear from you and, and great to see you again after all this time. Who does thought? Great pleasure, guys. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Thank you so Chris. much, Chris. That Fascinating stuff. Absolutely brilliant. Thank Thanks you. ever so much. Cheers. Good night. Cheers, Cheers good Chris. Night. Bye. We are enormously grateful to Chris Parry for giving up his time to talk to us at such length. He's a man very much in demand in the media, particularly these days. So a huge thanks to him for joining us. His book, Down South, his daily diary of his involvement in the Falklands, is a must-read and is available from all the usual outlets. I can thoroughly recommend it. Do keep an eye out for our next podcast for more fascinating aviation history when our guest will be Ian Whittle, son of Sir Frank Whittle, inventor of the jet engine. You can find all our podcasts on our website, toplandinggear.com, or wherever you normally get your podcasts from. And it would be great for us if you could subscribe. It is, of course, completely free. Thanks for listening and bye for now.